Welcome to My Ed Expert, specializing in what's possible in education. By merging research, practice, and passion, we provide insights from top educational thought leaders for right now implementation. Now, here's your host, author Susie Pepper Rollins. I'm so glad you joined us today. We're going to talk about something that sometimes sounds like a dirty word anymore, and it's rigor. Rigor, I saw a Facebook post once that said it was the number one word teachers were tired of hearing about. So it's getting kind of a bad reputation. And let's think about the word rigor. You know, it can mean chills accompanied by a high fever. It could mean severe and unyielding and strict. If you work in the medical field, rigor mortis, we're not even going to talk about that one. But even within our world of education, rigor can conjure up images of tedious work, worksheets cranked out by candlelight late at night with callous fingers. But the reality is rigor is is really helpful for kids. It helps engagement. It, it, it helps all kinds of things in the classroom. And we're going to be talking with an expert today, Dr. Scott Neal, who works in uh, aligning curriculum in schools. So, hey, Scott, how are you? I'm doing great, Susie. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm so glad you're here. I I cannot tell everything about you, so I'm going to have you fill in some gaps, but I want to share like three things about you. Uh, it's Dr. Scott Neal, and he has been a district and school leader for over 20 years. His expertise is really in elevating schools to, to high-functioning systems with increased uh, student achievement results, which is fantastic. He works in all kinds of districts around the nation, sharing his expertise. So I want to start a little bit, Scott, just a little more, you know, if you could fill in our listeners a little bit, just a little more about your background, what inspires you when you get up, how you got into this uh, passion about curriculum alignment of all things, because it doesn't sound that passionate to me. So I want to, I want to feel the passion from you. Yeah. So uh, I actually, I started uh, in high school as a really, I, I struggled. I was a struggling student and uh, wasn't very motivated and really didn't have that great of an experience as far as learning in high school. So when I went to college, um, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do and then started working at a summer camp and said, I think I want to work with kids and fix the system, you know, fix what I, my experience was like. So that led me into teaching and then eventually into school leadership and got placed in my first school leadership role in a very high need school in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And that became kind of my niche. Like I just developed a system and I had a great mentor that helped me uh, learn kind of how to make change happen in even the toughest schools. And we had success. And uh, I always introduced myself as a recovering turnaround principal because it's tough work. And uh, but we turned around five schools in Florida and just developed this set of like processes and systems that um, really led to a rapid change and and great results in less than three years, every school. Well, that's fantastic. And boy, those processes really matter, don't they? And I'm so touched by the students that you most enjoy working with. I share that passion with you. I joke with people that I'm passionate about the kids who don't want to get on the bus in the morning, you know, so I'm so excited that that's your area of passion. I want you to tell us a little bit. I found this very interesting. I was reading about you. Um, you were working in schools implementing data cycles and you sort of uncovered this thing where you felt like maybe too many students. And I want you to tell about this, you know, fill me in on this. You've maybe felt like too many students might be in tier two, tier three of those multi-tiered systems of support. Tell us a little bit about what was happening there, what you sort of uncovered. Yeah. So, uh, what, so I started my work as a consultant, like kind of doing it on the side and then eventually became a full-time gig uh, as people were, you know, requesting me to come out and help them implement data-driven instruction cycles, you know, getting feedback and 
looking at data and, and aligning assessments to college career readiness. And so my first questions when I'd sit down with a principal and their team would be, you know, I'd like to see your pacing guide. Let me see uh, your curriculum maps, your unit plans. Like, how, you know, what, what's your plan for the year on what you're going to teach and when you're going to teach it? And the best I could find at most schools was like a list of like some standards numbers on one piece of paper. And I said, this is not a curriculum, you know, like the, and, and what I've found is at a lot of schools and someone had said this to me recently and it really stuck with me is schools are resource rich and curriculum poor. Um, they have lots of resources and there are like all these like misfit parts that are floating around, but they're not tied to a curriculum. And so then when we start looking at even um, multi-tiered system of supports or RTI, whatever you want to call it, that they're usually an upside down pyramid because, um, you know, teachers are like, well, like these kids are struggling, so they need interventions. So now you have, you know, maybe 60, 70 percent of your kids in interventions. Well, that's a core instructional problem. And so you got to get back to the core and make sure the core is right. It should be getting, you know, serving 80, 90 percent of your student population. Um, and if the core is not right, you got to start there and fix that. And a lot of people don't do that because that's a lot of work. It's a lot of time and it's hard work. You like, you need guidance to do it. And so that's why people just kind of, it's kind of like putting a bandaid on a broken arm. We're just going to keep putting kids in interventions and not address the core instructional problem. Well, that really makes sense what you're saying. Uh, when you, when you sort of realized that and, and saw that in these buildings, what was sort of what steps did you take? Like one or two steps. What's like the what's the first thing you do when you encounter that? Yeah, so the first uh, first thing to do is really just create a a really sensible scope and sequence at the standards level. Like what standards are you going to teach and when you're going to teach them? And I kind of think of that as like the compass. It gets you in the direction, but it's not going to get you to the doorstep. But at least it gets you in the right direction. And so I'd start working with schools on just like getting your whole year on one page at the standards level. And it's like a quick reference guide to like, you know, I would love that as a father to say, if my daughter came home, I would know during the next five weeks, these are the standards she's going to be working on in school. Like, I don't really have that with my child's school yet. Um, but, and so it's really nice just to get, it's like, you know, if you entered a college classroom, you was like, what's my, where's my uh, syllabus, right? And what am I supposed to be learning? And how is that going to be? How am I going to be graded? All that stuff. You should have that information at every school. So we'd start there. Um, but then, you know, even doing as the work of a consultant coming back every month, it, got a little to a frustration point for teachers and myself because we weren't making a lot of progress in the amount of time that we had together. Um, and because we didn't have all the standards unpacked, we didn't have DOK levels, you know, the depth of knowledge levels to understand what, you know, how to align the instruction. And um, so it, we would like maybe go through a whole year and maybe get to like a quarter of the year maybe planned. And that wasn't good for anyone, you know, uh, it was, so it was like a lot of frustration and led to, development of uh, the instructional planning toolkit. Okay. So tell us a little bit more. I looked a little bit on your website on that. Tell, first of all, tell me your websites and while we're there now. Yeah. So the name of my company and the website is lead180.com, L-E-A-D. Uh, it gets mixed up with read 180 a lot, but it's actually lead 180. And the name came up from uh, me being a turnaround principal. Everyone would tell me after I left the school, wow, you did a 180 at that school or the whole school did a 180, you know? And uh, so it kind of stuck and and that's what it is. It's really leading change in classrooms and schools. Great. And, and of course, guys, we'll post that on our podcast notes, too. So if you're driving, don't try to write that down, although that's pretty easy to remember. Okay, so 
let me ask you a question on these on these year long maps. Is that something that you recommend uh, individual teachers when they're collaborating in the departments do, or is that something a central office should take on? Do you have any any opinions about that? Yeah, so I've seen it done both ways. Where it's I've seen the central office uh, do it, and then have the have the schools like follow a scope and sequence. Um, I think the best way to go about it is maybe a combination. Maybe a central office says, you know, here's your scope and sequence, and these are the standards we think are essential, and they line up to maybe some kind of district-wide assessment at the end of a unit or something. But then schools have autonomy to uh, decide on how they want to attack that at, at the school level uh, because every school is different, and I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all uh, for curriculum alignment and unit planning. I think teachers need to be able to have some autonomy, but they also need a lot of support and guidance to get that work done. Yeah, I, I got that. And then on when, I, when we think about that phrase, okay, curriculum alignment, we hear that a lot. But what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so um, I always talk about it um, when I'm in person, like at a session. I said, okay, there's three things that really uh, need to change, and they need to change in syn- synchronicity. I, we know the curriculum is supposed to change when the standards change, right? assessments are supposed to uh, change along with that. And what I'm finding is a lot of places, the assessments are like old wine and new bottles. They're taking the old, you know, multiple choice assessments from standards of the past and like moving them around to different standards numbers and saying, oh, we have, you know, college career ready assessments. And that's not the case. Um, I actually make the argument for assessment shouldn't always be paper and pencil. It should be project based learning. Um, Kids should be actually, you know, uh, assessed on a rubric or using a scale. And then instruction, you know, is the instruction changing with the curriculum and the assessments? Is everything aligned? If you don't have a have those all working together in synchronicity, if you change one, you have to change all three. You're going to have inaccurate data. You'll have either false positives as far as feedback to kids because the assessment wasn't was too low. Or you'll have, you know, doom and gloom where, you know, you're like, oh, my gosh, only 20 percent of the kids are proficient uh, because you're not teaching at the right level of rigor for every learning target to match the assessment. Do you feel like, you know, listening to your talking here, when you read, if we see a situation where too many st- students are, are being referred over for interventions and, and, and these tiers, is it, is it typically going to be curriculum alignment? Is that, is that, or, and that core instruction, is that what we need to go look at first? Yeah, I, I really, uh, I believe in that. Um, as a principal, uh, I always tell a story that we had 220 kids in kindergarten through second grade. And the teachers, when I first entered the building, wanted to retain 190 out of 220 kids. And um, I obviously did not agree to that. Um, but I said, like, that's a, that's a core instructional issue. Like, we're not meeting the needs of our kids. And if, ki- if that many kids are not learning in a year's worth of time, then we have to change what we're doing. Um, can you imagine putting all those kids in interventions or retaining those kids? The kids are now victim to misaligned instruction. And what I mean by misaligned is like, you know, a lot of people want to stick to just following a textbook and using that as a guide to like, you know, oh, everything's mapped out. Well, those textbooks are not necessarily always written to the proper level of depth of knowledge or even Bloom's taxonomy when you're going in and designing uh, a lesson or, or a task. 
Well, and, and what you're talking about with retention, which is a separate issue, it's the number one key to dropping out. I mean, it, it retaining students is something that's not even done in some countries. I mean, it's, it really is the number one thing you look at on which child might drop out if it's an overage child. So it's, that is, that is really when you look at the research by Jameson and particularly that it's just, it's just something that honestly can't even be on the table. We've, we've got to do our very best. So, and, and one thing that I'm listening to when you're, you're listening to you talk is, it seems to maybe get away from people. Like if we're looking at our assessments and our data, how do we get to that point? Yeah. And, and, and it really is, um, it's about, there's a, a couple factors here. There's time, right? So nobody really has the time to dig in and say, what's going on, do a root cause analysis. So the chaos of running a school takes over the day-to-day operations. All of a sudden it's December and now the holidays come. And like, so nobody ever like addresses the issue and that's where like someone like me and probably yourself too comes in and, and really is the outside person looking in and saying, you know, you have a problem here and we need to like, you know, and you have support to get to a resolution to this problem um, and really get people to start thinking and to slow down and uh, really take a look at, you know, is our current practice meeting the needs of our customers? You know, those students and parents are your clients, your customers. If you're a business and you were not giving people what they you know were paying for or, or signed up for, you would have to close down, you know, but schools are kind of like this place where they don't always have to close down. And, um, you know, especially schools that serve high levels of poverty, you know, those kids need an advocate. They need a voice. That's their only chance to get out of poverty is education, you know? So we need to make sure that it's aligned. It's not really pointing a finger at anyone. I think it's just been a huge misconception. Like, you know, like you said earlier, the rigor is this big buzzword, and when I work with a school, the first thing we do is get calibrated on what does rigor look like, you know, making sure we have a real clear understanding of what that is. And when we look at those standards, which is what you're talking about, re- really digging in here and mapping this out, those verbs give us a lot of clues on the rigor, right? You know, what are the, what, what's your thought on that? Yeah. So I, you know, actually there's some misconceptions around depth of knowledge that it's, you know, just about the verb. And so I actually go into a little bit deeper and say, you know, I show describe three different ways and say, okay, let's look what's happening after the verb. And it can go from just describing parts of a plant to describing the impact of a certain political stance on World War II. Well, those are two very different levels of rigor as far as what you're requiring a student to think and be able to do. Um, so, you know, it's really taking a look at, um, you know, I, I look at, my work is based on cognitive rigor and I've, Karen has developed this uh, tool called the cognitive rigor matrix. So it takes Bloom's taxonomy and the web's depth of knowledge and combines them together and provides these very clear look for us for teachers and for principals to look at so that when they're looking at a task to see if there's alignment, they can make sure that they have um, they're in the ballpark as far as wh- how they're going to design something or the offerings that they're going to be giving to kids as far as a task or, or instructionally. So steps and and I'm I'm going back to your instructional planning toolkit and and listening to those and I looked on your website and some of those and I'm listening to curriculum alignment I'm listening to what you're talking about at B- DOK. Um, if we're in our people who are listening in their building and they're going in their classrooms, how do they kind of know that it's aligned? I mean, what should people be looking for? So that's a good. So that's kind of how the instructional planning toolkit came about because it was, uh, you know, I would sit there with a team and we would like start having to like try and Google even learning targets or people would unpack them and they weren't be unpacked, you know, unpack a standard and it's not unpacking it completely. And what I mean by unpacking it is taking the standard standards are very deep and very broad and, uh, you know, making sure that we're getting all the, 
you know, all the expectations of what kids are supposed to know and be able to do very clearly stated for a day-to-day lesson. Um, and then the, taking those individual learning targets and breaking them down into the, the, the depth of knowledge level so that we know that if you're going to be designing, like, you know, the, this is about really getting teachers to think like designers. And so if you're week in and week out trying to plan your instruction and saying, okay, next week, what are we teaching? And, or even if it's two weeks from now, what are you teaching? You're never going to have the time to actually dig in and say, what, how are we going to design for the depth of knowledge? And so now with the toolkit, like teachers can sit down and say, oh, this is a DOK3 target. So what's that going to look like from the task? What's that going to look like for a student work product? What does that look like from my instruction? Great. With that in mind, let's begin designing that task because we already have the whole year planned. You know, we don't have to decide on what's going to be taught next week. We know it's going to be taught 10 weeks from now. And so really trying to front load all that information, get that all set. So now you can get and when you're having a collaborative planning session, which we know teachers have limited time, they can go in and think like a designer and design those experiences that are going to align with the depth of knowledge that was intended for every target, not just the standard, but for the target. And so once you chart chipping away at those across a unit and you can thoughtfully place them and get kids to application, uh, you know, now the kids are actually getting the experiences that are aligned to the intent of the standard. And, you know, of course, that was actually what I was about to ask you is about time. Uh, what, what guidelines? I'm sure that question comes up a lot. So what, what advice do you give to schools in terms of trying to find some time for teachers to do this critical work? Yeah, so I, I don't pull any punches when I you know, start working with a school. I said this year is going to be tough. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a lot of work. But, you know, again, my whole um, approach to alignment is not just alignment of the, the standards to the curriculum, but it's also alignment of teachers on a team. People have to work together um, and they not just in their grade groups, but vertically. And so my challenge to principals is like to find that time. Uh, you have to. I mean, as a principal, I spent about twenty five thousand dollars a year on substitute teachers just to get release time for teachers every six weeks. Um, and people thought it was crazy. Well, well, that's going to take, you know, the teachers out of the classroom and all that. I heard all that stuff. Right. And I'm like, yeah, but if we don't get teachers to be able to sit in a room and think like professionals and, you know, ch- make changes to the plan and respond to data, then they're just going to keep doing the wrong thing over and over again. And it's not even their fault because they haven't had time to think. Um, so they need that time and it needs to be very structured. Um, and then even on professional development days, there are times where after I kick off with a school, it's like I'm just going in as a thought partner and providing technical assistance on a, on a day that's you know, meant to be a workshop. It's working time. And then I am there to help you know, remove any barriers or just, you know, review something and be a guide on the side with a group of teachers as they're working through this process. But, you know, teachers are not afraid to do the work. Uh, they just want to be given the time to do the work. You know, you can't be unrealistic and say, you got to do this over the weekend. You know, you got to give them time. And so that's a challenge for, you know, that I work through as a, with principals and say, okay, let's figure out how we can make it happen. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be the whole staff the first year. Maybe you start with a pilot of three, three departments, you know, whatever you can do to get, get the work to begin moving. And then you can bring others on later in the year. Well, that's interesting. And I don't know, I, one of the things I always love doing are lesson rounds in school. So that kind of goes with what you're saying, where when we have those subs, we go in and plan and then we go practice this lesson, not in our own classroom, but someone else. We plan together and another te- the other teachers step back and observe. And then we go back and g- gather feedback from our students. And it's so much fun. You know, the kids tell us, oh, I love this. You ought to change that. And then we teach it to another group. And that's always been one of my favorite ways to do those things. It just builds 
it's just so much fun with each other to really practice our craft, you know, to really elevate our craft, you know, on that. So, well, it's interesting. It's interesting to bring that up because instructional rounds or instructional core walks is the second year of this work. So once you get everything planned out, now are we actually implementing it? You know, are our teachers actually teaching to those levels of rigor that we they intended? It can look great on paper. But, you know, if we want to make sure and it's not a gotcha, it's a really like, you know, are, are we there yet? And, um, and then also, like I had a principal that sent me a text. She was doing her formal observations and she said, I, you know, she was utilizing the toolkit. She's like, I just gave the most specific feedback I've ever given to a teacher. And it was all through the lens of rigor. She's like, your toolkits are not just about planning anymore. This is about giving feedback to teachers through the DOK as well. And I was like, huh, I, sh- I didn't even think about that, but that's great. <laughs> you know, like, so it's people are finding different applications for the toolkits now beyond just instructional planning. And that's fantastic. And they can read more about your toolkits on your website. And I'm going to we'll put a link up there um, for the podcast too. So something else about rigor though, you know, we started with this as kind of a dirty word, but the reality is rigor boosts engagement. You know, one of the things when you go in buildings and if students are really not really authentically engaged, sometimes the rigor's too low. It's a tedious task that I don't really want to do. Have you seen that? Can you speak to that a little bit in your practice? Oh, yeah. And um, it's, you know, one of those things where like I don't, Tony Wagner had these like seven survival skills for the 21st century, you know, like what we really need to do to get kids ready to for the world of work in the 21st century. And, um, you know, our schools are really based on this model of, of the industrial age, you know, trying to it's, we're not getting kids ready to work in a factory anymore or work, you know, be you know, I'll work on their family's farm, they're going to have to go in and start thinking critically and solve problems. And the, the, the biggest miss I see schools make is not providing the context where like this right outside the door of the school. Um, you know, one of the best lessons I ever saw was a, a teacher was using Little Red Riding Hood and uh, the kids had to, and this is South Side of Chicago, the kids had to develop a survival guide for Little Red Riding Hood to sur- survive in their neighborhood. And so, right. So, so so you get, now there was no need for engagement after that because the kids became the subject matter experts, right? And so the kids were coming up with all these, like they're developing maps and like working together. And some kid had a context from one neighborhood. Another kid had context from another neighborhood. They came together. They like, you know, designed uh, like, you know, this three-step process to not talk to people on this corner and like, you know, really brought in like how many gangs were in the neighborhood and which gangs, you know, what you shouldn't even wear a red riding hood in this, in this neighborhood, you'll get shot. <laughs> I mean, it's serious. Right. And so the kids, you know, just went off with it, but the, nobody had to say, Oh, go, you know, the teacher never had to redirect one person to tell them to keep working. And I mean, and the, this is a school where like, you know, a couple kids had like been shot and killed by crossfire as a K through eight, you know, and so it's a real problem. And um, so it was just kind of masterful to see how the teacher could take, uh, you know, like a a fable like that and turn it into this real world context. And that's why I tell people like, don't, you don't have to look very far, you know, it's right outside your door. Just let the kids become the experts and then you'll have the engagement, you know, or make it something that they're passionate about. Um, There's so many things going on, you know, in the world today that, Kids don't need much. They just need to know like, hey, I'm doing something that just could possibly change the world tomorrow outside my door. Well, real, you know, real world relevance is a big exactly. part of this. And, you know, we, rigor makes it juicy and meaty and exciting. I mean, that's what rigor does. It, it lets kids really have a valuable task that really lets them dig in on it. You know, so I'm, I'm loving that example. You, one thing that is a, a little bit of a departure, but, but, um, 
I, I saw it on some of your work. And since we're talking about all your work in buildings is you talked about how do we sustain change? Like, you know, we can go in and things can be just going super duper and everybody's excited. And then how do we keep that going after Scott leaves the building, after, you know, we get a new next year, other people come and go, all those challenges that happen. Give us some, give us some pearls of wisdom on that, Scott. How do we keep change going? Yeah. So, um, what, so there's like my work is, and everyone's asked me like, what's the secret sauce, right? Like how do you turn around a school and keep like, keep people motivated and change? Like, you know, even when you're not asking them to do stuff, how do you keep them motivated? Right. And it's like, and I've heard you talk about this before in some of your podcasts, it's about building self-efficacy, you know, building that belief that you can get to a goal. Most of the schools I walked into never really had success for decades. And so people, I got the same people, like you know, same, same, different people, but the same conversation in different schools. Well, you know, I know you did it at that other school, but this school's different, you know, and they would always give me some kind of like, you know, naysayers that just say it can't be done here. Um, and so one of, you know, the, the things, the first thing I look at is people, right? Like, so I, I don't work with just any school anymore. You have to be in a good to great situation because if you're a school that's struggling to even get people to come to a meeting, or to get teachers to even show up, um, they're not going to align the curriculum, you know? So you got to have people in a place where they feel safe, not only physically, but also emotionally. And they, and you, and the principal can create these conditions where change can happen. People are not going to change if they're scared, they're going to get fired or get in trouble. Um, so you have to build this space of, I always called my schools a laboratory. I want you to try different things and try these little tests like for four to six weeks, right? And if you do it and it gets results, then we're all going to learn from you how you did it. And we're going to try and spread it to the rest of the school. Um, so really starting there and having a belief in people and then also kids, like making kids have these incremental goals. And this is why the data work is so important, because if we don't have alignment, then those goals are not going to be uh, effective, you know, because they're not going to really match what the kids really know and are able to do. So I really look at it as like a scare, a staircase as you're looking at like once you get the people and now you're trying to align those people to move up the staircase, having these incremental goals and chunking them out. Everyone has these beautiful plans beginning of the year, like, hey, by June, we're going to save the world, right? We're going to be at 90% proficiency or whatever. Well, to a kid, what is that? You know, like, I mean, June, this is August. And I'm like, two years below grade level. What does that mean to me? And so we want to be able to give kids quality feedback every, like in the minute, by the day, by the week, tied to a certain goal so that they get on a winning streak. And so they start feeling like, hey, every time I come to school, I come to school with a purpose. I'm getting one step closer to chipping away at this larger goal. And that can only happen incrementally in, in these smaller milestone moments. And so those milestones can be as short as a week or they could be every couple of weeks. But we have to have those feedback loops along the way, letting them know that they're making progress. And teachers need that as well. Um, and then the last piece is really just support. Um, you know, so you can establish goals all day and then just say, go get them. You know, you got to help people. Um, so really providing the support, like we talked about. So if we set a goal to align the curriculum, hey, I'm going to bring Scott in. Or I'm going to bring Susie in as a technical assistance partner to help you do this work. And I'm also going to take these three things off your plate. Like one of the deals we make with teachers is that if you make a real detailed unit plan, you don't have to write lesson plans anymore. I'm like what? Like teachers, that gets their attention, right? And so you got to be realistic. You got to, if you're going to get something, you got to give something, you know? And so making uh, that, you know, support for teachers and making this part of their really, it is really job embedded professional learning because as they do their planning, they're actually learning more about the standards than they ever would before. 
and then also su- support for the student learning. And so saying that, you know, if you're a struggling student, we're going to do X, Y, and Z to help you provide support. And then if kids see that that leads to positive results against their goals, they're going to be more engaged to come back and get more doses of those, you know, that corrective instruction because you help them get to a goal. I just love what you're saying. I'm writing everything down and I'm getting honestly super duper pumped up here, you know, about what you're talking about. Because one thing is, you know, success brings us, we want to have more success. So when we just get students feeling some success, but the feedback has to be authentic, particularly as they get older. I can't just tell you, attaboy, you know, or pat you on the back. It has to be feedback about your work. One thing that I read that was really profound to me is that feedback begins with their work. You know, I see their progress. I see their work and I can make comments on that. And boy, does that feel good, you know, to have someone really commend my work. Um, so I'm loving everything you're saying on this, Scott. I'm going to, I tell you what, I'm, I've got so many takeaways. I'm trying to narrow down here a little bit. I'm going to mention some things that really hit me. And then if you'll chime in a little bit, then I'd like to close with maybe, you know, back to school, one or two pointers just to get us off to a good start. Um, I love what you said early on about how we're resource rich and curriculum poor. Isn't that the truth? And here's another saying I'm so going to steal about assessments being old wine in a new bottle. I just think that's priceless. How to sustain growth, how to, how to, how to build this, uh, reaching goals. And, and, and I understand I'm after speaking with you for this amount of time, I feel like I understand this value of curriculum alignment better. I feel like I have a better take on what that is and some concrete steps that I could take in looking at that. And my biggest takeaway really and is listening to what you're saying about in the very beginning of our session about if we see too many students in, in these interventions, let's step back and reflect a little bit and say, let's go and look at our core instruction and see what we're doing. I just think that's such a critical lesson from today. Okay, I've taken up too much talk time. You tell me your big takeaways. You don't want people to forget. Um, well, the first, like, so... Yeah, you gave me a lot there. <laughs> but going back to uh, people going back to school, like as a school leader, like I would say right now, this is your time to like, you know, I always say that the fourth quarter is the first quarter for next year, right? So a lot of schools are wrapping up and, um, you know, they're just trying to close out the year. But the schools I work with, we've been working on really lining up for success for next year. So teachers have already tweaked their plans. They already have their assessments updated and they're going into summer going like, on a winning streak. They're going on downhill, feeling motivated because they're like, oh, we already got the year set. Now we can just like design tasks all summer, you know? And so that's the kind of like, you want to be able to set up, you know, it might be too late this year, but thinking about even going into the summer, how can you get everyone ready for success going into the school year? And same thing for teachers, you know, what can you do to make, like do something differently than you did the year before? Because we are what we repeatedly do, you know? So if you are not getting the results that you want to get as a teacher, you have to change something, you know? And so start looking at, is my instruction really aligned to the intent of the standard in every single target? Um, and then, the, you know, just another big piece of advice for, especially if you're a principal going to a new school or just a new principal in general, you need to listen. Listening is leading. Do not come in as Superman or Superwoman thinking you're going to save everybody because nobody wants to be saved. They want to be heard. And um, honestly, as a principal, I would take that approach and 90% of the things that I wanted to do, it came from the people agreed, like they say the same thing, but I didn't tell them that it, it was my idea. I took it as their idea and implemented it. And I got much more uh, higher level of motivation and follow through because people are like, oh, he heard me. He's running with my plan and I want to prove that my plan is going to work instead of, oh, I got to just do what this guy told me to do. 
Um, so that's, you know, kind of the, the beginnings of the secret sauce and then building relationships, you know, I, people would be surprised. I think I'd be pulling out spreadsheets and talking about data the first couple of weeks of school. I said, all we're doing is building positive relationships with kids. Um, I would look at data before I walked in with like behavioral things and stuff. We're going to get the behavior under control, but we're going to do it in a positive way. And so having all those things set up, it creates a huge quick win. And everyone's like, this school is different. What has changed? I mean, one thing was just having straight lines in the hallway of a school. Everyone thought we were already like successful, you know? And so then, then you come in and say, okay, now let's talk about instruction. Let's talk about data, like setting goals and stuff like that. After you get a couple of those quick wins out of the way. Well, I am so motivated by you, and I'm so excited that you joined us today. Um, and guys, on the notes, we're going to put links to Scott's website and, and any information that he can provide in addition to that. And what's your Twitter, Scott? Uh, so the one I I have one at Lead180, uh, but then the one I use the most probably, <laughs> I'd be honest, is Scott M. Neal. So just my name, uh, N-E-I-L is the last name. So okay, Scott well, M. Neal. I didn't mean to interrupt you. We'll put that on there, too. So yep. here. So I never want to end a podcast without thanking every educator out there for the tremendous work that you do every day, opening doors for your kids. Scott and I, we know it is a challenging position, but boy, there's nothing like it in the world to be an educator. So we want to thank you for all the possibilities you bring to your kids every day. Join us every week for other conversations with fantastic thought leaders like Scott. This has been wonderful. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. Uh, Thank you, Susie. I appreciate you having me. All right. Thank you, guys. Bye, Bonnie. We are so glad you joined us on this episode of My Ed Expert. For more resources on the ever-evolving realm of education, head on over to myedexpert.com and get inspired by all of our authors' work through downloads, strategies, and best practices. While you're there, hop on to get updates right to your inbox because you don't want to miss a thing right here on My Ed Expert. 